Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. When, in 2009, Rio de Janeiro was awarded the 2016 Summer Olympic Games, it became the first city in South America to host any Olympics. Brazilians then were optimistic and eager to highlight their country's emergence as a regional and global power, and they had good reason to feel that way. Now, however, the factors that fueled this feeling have faded, as Brazil is experiencing economic, political, and social challenges, just as the Rio Olympics began. In their new book from the Brookings Institution Press, titled Aspirational Power, Brazil on the Long Road to Global Influence, authors David Maris and Harold Trincunas examine Brazil's rise as an emerging power and why the great powers, including the United States, should respond positively to Brazil's emergence. My colleague Bill Finan recently sat down with the authors to talk about their new book. Stay tuned after this conversation to hear another installment of Steve Hess' stories, followed by our coffee break with a scholar who explains how growing up in Sarasota, Florida, inspired him to get involved in public policy. Okay, over to you, Bill. Hello and welcome. I'm Bill Finan, an editor at Brookings Press, and today I have two authors of a new book that we've recently published, Aspirational Power, Brazil on the Long Road to Independence. We have David Mars, who is a distinguished professor at the University of California at San Diego, and Harold Trincunas, who is a senior fellow in the Foreign Policy Program at Brookings. And thanks to both of you for coming today to talk about the book. You're welcome. Um, there's this terrible, infamous quote about Brazil. Brazil is the country of the future and always will be. And uh, over the last several years, it seemed that quote was consigned to the trash heap of history. But in the last few years, in the last two years actually, a lot of negatives have appeared about Brazil. Zika, the uh, issues of corruption, the impeachment of a sitting president, um, the concern about security and other issues at the Olympics. Um, what happened? Why this, why this dramatic change? Um, well, it's, it's, if we take a historical look at Brazil, all right, Brazil's gone through these booms and busts. Uh, and uh, the booms and busts um, are the result of Brazilian failures domestically to create a sustainable economic model, one that doesn't depend heavily mm -hmm. on the, uh, the ups and downs of the primary commodities uh, and its own domestic internal situation. Um, so what happened in the last 10 years was Brazil found itself riding this wave of the commodity boom. Uh, and that commodity boom produced uh, enough wealth to paper over all of the problems, the political problems, the economic problems. Uh, it helped alleviate a lot of the social uh, uh, problems. But, but Brazil was captive to that commodity boom. It didn't invest the benefits of that boom in a sustainable way. So we weren't seeing that externally, these internal right. issues. Right. We were. only, externally, we only saw the riding that wave, all right? But underneath it, what we could see, what we didn't see, but because of the massive wealth that was coming in, the corruption, mm -hmm. okay, the, the, um, uh, the problems with the way in which politics are structurally uh, uh, set up in Brazil, uh, the dependence of um, the social, the rise of this middle class, the bottom of that new middle class, uh, dependent on inflows of money uh, from uh, the international economy over which Brazil has no influence. One of the interesting things we get into in the book is exactly the, what are the connections between the domestic 
success of Brazil's institutions and its international influence. And one of the points we make is that Brazil has relied historically and increasingly so as we get closer to the presence on soft power, the power to attract mm -hmm. other countries, uh, to interest them in Brazil's in, uh, diplomatic positions and its uh, aspirations for a particular kind of international order. So when Brazil does well domestically, as it did during the period of the commodity boom, that really contributes to Brazil's ability to be influential internationally. Not on all issues, not mm -hmm. on all times, but uh, it helped uh, Brazil uh, reach further towards its aspirations for becoming a major power during the boom. Now that we're in the, in the bus cycle, and now that we see the problems with Brazil's domestic model, we, we, we should see uh, um, a limit or an erosion of Brazilian influence as a soft power kind of recedes. Mm. Um, and really, uh, it's, uh, this is why it's important for Brazil to address the present situation. So I'll, I'll come back to soft power in a moment, but I just wanted to touch on a few of the things that happened during the last 20 years between 1995 and 2015 that externally made Brazil look like it had, had cast off this country of the future and had become a, a primary player on the, the world stage, as you, as you talk about in the book. It became the seventh largest economy in the world. Uh, Brazilian took, troops took part in UN peacekeeping uh, operations in Lebanon and Congo. Um, it played a key role in international uh, discussions on climate change and nuclear proliferation and uh, internet governance. And as you mentioned on the domestic side, uh, the middle class expanded and the worst poverty, the immiseration in the country was erased. And can you just talk for a few minutes about how and why did all that take place in those 20 years? It's, um, well, I think we have to, when we put this in the context and in, in the book, we go back about 100 years to show four different episodes during which uh, success at home in Brazil gave it the hope that it could finally realize its aspirations to become this major power in the international stage. And what we see fairly consistently is, is this pattern of the upswing in Brazil's uh, uh, domestic fortunes followed by uh, 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 a push towards its aspirations to being a, a major influence on the international order and then followed uh, uh, either by crisis at home or by change in the international environment that is unfavorable, in a way that's unfavorable to Brazil. Mm -hmm. So what happened in the last 20 years was a combination of Brazil getting its domestic house in order economically and politically, becoming a consolidated democracy, consolidating a, a functioning market economy with sort of a social democratic uh, um, uh, veneer on it, at least, that, that, that helped in include more and more people into the middle class and, and reduce poverty. A, and it, it was, you know, that's very dramatic democratic consolidation because 1985 was the end of the military. No, absolutely. And this is, you know, really we have to remember, remember. Brazil has some real achievements, yeah. including uh, a much better macroeconomic picture even today, even when it's going through a recession, it still has significant international reserves. It's put behind the, the kinds of crises it used to have in the past economically, the kinds of crises it's had politically, even as it goes through uh, the impeachment process of, of uh, uh, President Rousseff. This is all proceeding constitutionally, according to the Brazilian Supreme Court, has said unanimously that this is a, a legitimate and constitutional process. Many of those judges were appointed under mm -hmm. the, the, the President Rousseff and former President Lula. So we see some real gains. And this is why the reversals, I think, are, are particularly striking mm -hmm. yeah. today, because there really were some very important I mean, achievements. Brazil has many assets. 
I mean, it's a large country. It, it has mineral wealth. It has agricultural wealth. It has uh, a, um, a core of people, of an educated uh, population. Um, its inability to sort of break out of this pattern really are the results of uh, domestic uh, issues. And in, the, in that 20-year peri 20 period, 95 uh, uh, forward, um, Brazil was making adjustments. I think that those adjustments got overwhelmed by just the vast wealth that came in. You know, when, when, when you're in an economic crisis period, as Brazil was in the early 90s, mm -hmm. all right, you make adjustments because you don't have a lot of room to play. Then you get hit by this commodity boom and the wealth just suggests that, well, you don't have to carry through. So they made progress and then that progress stopped. There's, a, there's an irony that we were talking about earlier, too, that Brazil wanted to be part of the global economy but still be up, away from it. And then it was, it was caught up in this, these ups and downs because it, it still retained its, its role as a commodity producer, and that was the main source of its economic growth during those years. Um, I want to come back to soft power because that's, mm -hmm. the book is really, in many ways, a discussion of Brazil using its soft power to become an emergent leader on, on the world stage. Can one of you first describe what soft power is? Okay. Well, soft power is um, uh, a way of gaining influence by attracting people to you. People are attracted to you because they believe in your values, uh, you're a, a role model for them, so they want to be like you, they want to support you uh, because you represent what they want. That's in co contrast to hard power, which is more coercive. You know, either uh, I force you uh, to side with me, mm -hmm. or I make you unable to oppose me, or I buy you off. Okay, uh, you know, buying people off is based on your economic hard power. Uh, sanctions are hard power. Okay, so soft power uh, is an ideal strategy for uh, a people who don't want to be seen as militaristic, who don't want to pay the opportunity cost of building up uh, a, a large military uh, presence. Um, so in that sense, it's ideal for Brazil. Now, soft power is relative. Mm -hmm. So uh, you know, I'll turn it over to Howard, uh, to Harold in a minute, but I want to emphasize the point that soft power is relative. So as Brazil is gaining soft power, as people are looking to Brazil, Brazil also has to think, well, how are those people also looking at the other states who are determining whether I rise up uh, in international influence or not? So part of the issue for Brazil is the U.S. has a ton of soft power. Okay, so as Brazil rises in its uh, soft power capabilities, okay, can it use those in ways that oppose U.S. soft power? Mm. And, we, and we argue in the book that that's not a good strategy because U.S. soft power is just so much so greater. Enormous, yeah. I, I agree with David, and I, I would just um, uh, also point out on the soft power issue that we have to understand that this is based on a particular historical and geopolitical context. Mm -hmm. Brazil li lives in a fairly peaceful part of the world uh, compared to other regions, and it's progressively become... Uh, fewer and fewer conflicts between states. Um, so the importance of hard power for Brazil is um, uh, become less prominent across time. And in fact, Brazil's own uh, approach to international influence has tended to inf uh, emphasize soft power 
in part because Brazil has a different view of the international liberal order. I mean, and it shares many of the same values as sort of the, the great democracies in, 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 in terms of uh, uh, emphasis on sovereignty, on, on equality, on market economies, mm -hmm. on absence of you know, aggressive war, but it places much greater emphasis on sovereign equality and non-intervention than the other uh, uh, great democracies do. And so this is where you see some friction again, uh, between Brazil and the other powers, especially between Brazil and the United States. So this is where you know, Brazil is particularly critical of uh, instances where it perceives the U.S. to be acting unilaterally against the rules of the system. So, so there are no metrics of soft power like there are for hard power, you know, like standing armies or money spent on a percentage of GNP for defense. So what are some of the examples of Brazil's soft power itself? I mean, I guess these are qualitative descriptions. Well, right. there has been some attempt to develop more quantitative indicators okay, okay. for a soft power. We talk about some of them in the book. Of course, they are problematic because they tend to ultimately rest on qualitative assessments of uh, cultural influence, uh, diplomatic influence, um, uh, um, um, uh, other ways in which a country might attract others to its cause, how influential its language is, how influential its literature and, and other cultural products are. So um, uh, these are, are ways of trying to get at this question of mm -hmm. soft power. Um, and so we look at a, several different efforts to, to assess this. And they all show that Brazil basically ranks at the top of the emerging powers. Um, uh, of, of, of countries like India, South Africa, et cetera, but below the established developed democracies and uh, um, even small countries in, in small democracies in Europe like Denmark or, or uh, Switzerland would tend to rank higher on the on dimensions of soft power than a country like Brazil. The book is primarily a look at Brazil's role on, on the international stage and, and how it's emerged uh, as, as, as an emerging power, not a great power. There's also a role of the United States and Brazil that's discussed um, because the United States still exerts a large influence over, over the South. Um, how would you characterize that relationship over the years, or the, the, say, say from the Clinton years on, uh, and, and how would you characterize it today, too? Well, I think that the thing to keep in mind is that when we talk about emerging powers, we're really talking about that set of countries that by themselves are not going to be able to challenge the most dominant countries in the international order, which today is still the United States. Mm -hmm. These are countries that are essentially bargaining with the United States over how the international rule of the rules of the game should function, basically, to influence them in ways that give more room for their own aspirations or that change the order in ways that reflect their own values. So that this is the part of the process of, that, of what's going on uh, uh, between Brazil and the United States. And so when the United States sees Brazil as supporting the liberal international order, um, uh, generally relations have been good. I think when you get into areas of disagreement, particularly around uh, instances where the U.S. behaves unilaterally or where Brazil perceives the existing structures as unfair, mm -hmm. uh, unfair because they were created by powers long before Brazil was influential, um, there you see uh, uh, more friction. Yeah. Um, the relationship between the United States and Brazil is structurally uh, one where you would expect to see much more cooperation than has been there. Um, I think the, um, there's less cooperation because even in these areas where the United States is irritated by Brazil, 
Mm. Brazil really doesn't have that much influence. Well, what are some of those so areas? What some of those like? areas are, are like uh, the United States was a, was a big advocate of responsibility to protect. Okay, mm -hmm. so intervention uh, to protect uh, uh, human rights uh, 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 issues. Uh, now, like in all international relations, there's a lot of ambivalence in what, you know, what does that mean in particular situations and whatnot. Brazil pushed for responsibility while protecting. Right, which you talk right? about in the book. Which yes. we talk about right. in the book. Um, now, uh, you know, that, that, that created a splash, because here's Brazil proposing a different standard for intervention uh, in, uh, on humanitarian grounds, okay? But no, Brazil couldn't get anybody behind its agenda and it left that agenda. So the United States, you go to the UN today, you see with their discussion on, on humanitarian intervention, it's all about responsibility to protect. Mm. It's not about responsibility while protecting. Uh, you know, on the financial side, if you think about the BRICS Development Bank or whatnot, and there's a lot of rhetoric about uh, uh, Brazil doesn't like, uh, you know, the IMF uh, restrictions, uh, these are alternatives and whatnot, but you start looking at how the banks are structured, uh, and in fact, they depend on IMF uh, uh, um, certification of adjustment processes in order to access most of the money that the bank is out there offering. So, so in that sense, it it supports the existing uh, situation. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, so you'll get a lot of press about the United States is concerned about Brazil, but the U.S. foreign policy really doesn't get very involved with Brazil on those issues. We do get involved, like uh, in the chapters that we talk about on the internet and whatnot. When, mm -hmm. when our interests coincide, then, then the U.S. is very willing to play an active role working with Brazil there. And mm -hmm. so you see, in those instances, you see much more uh, active. Uh, yeah, and, and I would say, I mean, um, climate change, the recent Paris uh, talks were a perfect example where both sides adjusted um, their strategy. And says the United States, saw that Brazil could be, was an important leader in environmental issues, that it had made important strides at home in dealing with issues such as deforestation and its contributions mm -hmm. uh, to global CO2. Um, and Brazil also saw that adopting a strategy, a different strategy um, of um, building bridges between the global south and the developed countries would allow it to become much more influential. And in fact, the U.S. and Brazil did work together closely to, to, to reach this agreement. Um, in a sense, both of them adopting a different strategy. We have to remember that earlier, in, in previous rounds of the climate talks, Brazil had aligned with, with China and India on opposing uh, um, uh, a more ambitious uh, goal for uh, uh, addressing global climate change. And Brazil switched this time. It switched to the high ambition coalition. So we have to, to wrap up here, but I want to ask you quickly, you both are positive in the book about Brazil's future. Do you have, do you have a, a quick quick reason as to why you're positive? Sure. I, you know, I think if we look at the situation today in Brazil and we look at the historical trend line, we see that Brazil comes out of these crises over and over again mm -hmm. and usually comes out of them stronger. Today, uh, even as we worry about all the things that are happening, we also see a lot of momentum for change in Brazil particularly on the issue of corruption. And I think a Brazil that comes out of this process uh, uh, with um, confirming the status of a, itself as a consolidated democracy that resumes economic growth and that also becomes a leader in the fight against corruption internationally because of the actions of its judges, its prosecutors, its police, really can put together a very attractive model uh, uh, that to rebuild its soft power going forward. Yeah, I mean, I think the um, you know, despite the problems going on now, the 
um, the institutions in Brazil do have a resiliency. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's up to Brazilians to take those institutions and that resiliency and, and adjust them in a way that can make politics and economics um, much fairer, much more sustainable, uh, uh, much less crisis prone. Um, but it is an opportunity for them. Uh, and if they, if, they, if they can take that opportunity, um, they'll, be, they'll be ahead of the game because they have good institutions. Well, all eyes will be focused on Brazil and this year with the, the Olympics coming on. Um, thanks to both of you for taking the time to come by to talk about the book. It's Aspirational Power of Brazil on the Long Road to Global Influence. You can visit our website to learn more about the book, Aspirational Power. If you want to hear about the economic consequences of hosting major sporting events like the Olympics, listen to the podcast interview I did last summer with economist Andrew Zimbalist on his Brookings Press book, Circus Maximus. And now Steve Hess recounts what he did after he left the Nixon White House. Pat and I had this marvelous relationship where I worked for him in the year 1969, in which uh, he ultimately sold the president of the United States, a conservative, on a very liberal piece of legislation, perhaps the most liberal piece of legislation since the New Deal, the Family Assistance Plan, and also had opposition within the White House uh, of a very br another brilliant Ivy League professor, Arthur Burns of, of Columbia. So it's the story of their fighting back and forth and of uh, Pat uh, winning in his own way. Well, finally, on uh, something like August 7th, the president announced his domestic policy. Uh, and that, in a sense, ended our, our job and our responsibility. We were not the people uh, who were congressional relations types or uh, who were going to put this thing through. Uh, the, the need turned to another type of person. Uh, and the president reorganized his staff. And the domestic advisor, instead of Moynihan, uh, became John, John Ehrlichman. Moynihan, who, had a, who was going to back to Harvard another year anyway, he only take a two-year leave from Harvard unless you're going to quit, uh, and uh, it made him counselor to the president with cabinet rank, which really meant that he could do much anything he wanted to do as long as he, he didn't get in any trouble. And Pat Moynihan had a million things that he wanted to do and could best do from a White House office. What did they do with me? That was a real problem, what to do with me. And it was it was it was complicated. Um, the president invited me into the Oval Office and said, in effect, my secretary of HEW, Health, Education, and Welfare, Bob Finch, is 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 failing. This was very sad. He said it in, in sorrow because Bob of all the cabinet, Bob Finch was the only one he really cared about. Uh, he had been the, he had been his campaign manager once. He was lieutenant governor of California. He would actually have liked him to be his vice presidential uh, running mate. And he said, "I want you to go over there and see if we can straighten it out." It was a typical case that must come to many more than me, where you say, "Yes, Mr. President," you walk out of the door, and you say, "How the hell can I do that?" For one thing, Bob Finch and his deputy, the undersecretary, Jack Veneman, I thought were very good guys. I liked them very much. They were friends. How could I walk in and say the president thinks you failed and wants me to take over? So I did walk over and say as best I could, you know, let's see if I can be helpful and so forth. And it, it, was, it was going to be an embarrassment to them. 
So they made their counteroffer and say, look, we have something called the White House Conference on Children and Youth. This is started by Theodore Roosevelt, and it's held every 10th year. It's very important. We're a year into it. We haven't even appointed a chairman. Would you do it? And I thought, oh, what an awful job, but what else? So I said I would do it, uh, and the understanding was for, for a year. I took that job in, in December 19. 19- uh, 69. And within a very short time, maybe two, three weeks, I realized you could not at this moment in our history have a conference on children and youth that could have succeeded. Their, quest- their, their needs and their problems and their questions were too utterly different. And you would have been consumed by the youth press, while in some ways, from a government pa- point of view, the most important things that could be done were in the children field. So I went back to the president and said, Mr. President, we're going to have to, I think we should divide this in half. We'll have one, we'll have the children's conference in 60, 69, uh, no, in 70, and the youth conference in 71. He said, okay, that's what you want to do. Go ahead and do it. So I was stuck for two years doing, doing this job. Uh, and then uh, finally in January of 72, came to the Brookings Institution, and I've been happily here ever since. You can listen to all of the Steve Hess stories, recordings on our SoundCloud channel. Finally, meet Adi Tomer, a fellow in our Metropolitan Policy Program. My name is Adi Tomer. I'm a fellow in the Metropolitan Policy Program here at the Brookings Institution. I grew up in Sarasota, Florida, a place that made a lot of interesting decisions with how it wanted to physically build out, the kind of infrastructure it built. So it really inspired me in a lot of ways to not only get into public policy, but to think about how public policy affects the built environment around us. In the United States today, it's hard to say any public policy issue is more pressing than income inequality. Individuals need better access to economic opportunity. Uh, the data is pretty clear on where the income gains have gone for the past really three, four decades. Uh, So that's a pressing issue that really confronts all of us in the public policy space across the ideological spectrum. Um, Being a scholar who's focused on infrastructure issues, I really try to take that kind of pressing issue of of how people can access economic opportunity and think about it in a more physical dimension, right? So so where are people living? Can they reach jobs? Um, Can people get to schools? Uh, Can they afford to get on the internet and stream videos from places like Khan Academy that can help them get ahead in the modern economy? Uh, There's a lot of ways we can take that really core pressing public policy issue uh, and apply it across all of our different policy silos. I'm working on a really exciting project around broadband infrastructure. Uh, It's an issue that we hear a little bit about in in the mass media, uh, in particular a topic of the digital divide, which many folks think about where broadband goes and think about kind of, uh, you know, decades old, mid 20th century uh, redlining around mortgages. And and what we're finding is that's really not the case for the most part. Um, Most people have access to high-speed internet, but there's two core questions that we're able to answer with this, which is, is does that internet uh, reach the speeds that they need for future-proofing for things like streaming videos and, and other kind of playing video games online um, to, of course, uh, being able to uh, do more direct business? Um, and second is who's actually subscribing to internet service and, uh, and are we seeing enough subscribership rates? In both cases, as a little bit of a preview, we're not finding numbers are good enough yet. So even for an advanced economy like the United States, there's a lot of room for growth. And we're really excited to publish that research uh, later in the fall. 
my other real passion, especially outside work, is uh, and my family is sports. So uh, my favorite sports book of all time is Boys Will Be Boys by Jeff Perlman. It's about the uh, 1990s Dallas Cowboys, who are known as one of the most riotous and uh, and kind of fun-loving teams, both on the field and off of it. Kind of one of those classic play hard and, and play hard, if you will. <laughs> so um, uh, Perlstein does an amazing job cataloging what those guys are doing behind the scenes. And I recommend for anyone who's into either professional football or, or sports in general. And that's all for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. My thanks to our audio engineer and producer, Mark Holscher, plus thanks to Carissa Nitschi, Bill Finan, Jessica Pavone, Eric Abelah, and Rebecca Weiser, and our intern, Sarah Abdel-Rahim. And I welcome Vanessa Souter to the team. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen to it now in all the usual places, including iHeartRadio. Send feedback email to me at bcp at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews. <laughs>